All right, turn to the last chapter of Luke's gospel. And don't let it fake you off because we're going to spend two weeks in it. I know we've covered the last two in, in a week each, but we're going to spend um, two weeks looking at this last chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. We have been over a year walking our way through Luke's gospel, one chapter at a time, and now we come to a close. And in many ways, this morning, uh, we're, gonna, we're going to circle back to where we began. And you'll see that as we walk through part of this last chapter together. As we close the book on Luke's gospel, we're going to open six more books in Luke chapter 24. And we're going to see three of them this morning and three next Sunday morning as we bring our time together to a close. The first open book, that I, or the book that I want us to open first in Luke chapter 24 is seen in verses 1 through 12, and it's the book of the open tomb. So we're going to open the book of the tomb. The tomb is opened in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse number 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus as we saw last week, has been crucified. He's been buried by Joseph of Arimathea, kind of in a quick move because the Sabbath was approaching, and now the ladies are coming to the tomb to do a, a more appropriate, full job of anointing his body for burial with the proper spices. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The tomb is open. And they enter that tomb, they did not find the body of Jesus. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? In verse number 8, they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Imagine your teacher, your pastor, the one who's discipled you for three years, dies. You go to the funeral. You bury him. Cover the grave in flowers. You go back to the church. You have you a prayer meeting. On Sunday morning, some people want to go visit the grave, and they come back to the prayer meeting a few hours later and say, hey, we went to the grave, and it's empty, it's open, and the pastor's gone. The teacher's gone. I got a feeling that those words would appear to be nonsense to you as well. So let's, let's not judge them too harshly. The ladies come back and say, the teacher's gone, the tomb is open, the tomb is empty, but these words appear to the, to the apostles as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. 
He's going to see for himself. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen, linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. So we begin Luke chapter 24 with an open tomb. And the open tomb in, ex- in itself is not significant unless that open tomb is also empty. And the empty tomb is not really significant if the one who was in that tomb is not alive. I mean, anybody could be a grave robber, right? So the open tomb is only significant if the open tomb is empty, and the empty tomb is only significant if the empty tomb is no longer occupied by a person who is now alive, and really that living person is not really that significant if that living person didn't die. Are you following me? So all of this begins with a death. And if it doesn't begin with a death, you don't have a resurrected life. And if you don't have a resurrected life, it doesn't matter if there's an empty tomb or an open tomb. So we have to go all the way back to the death that we saw last week. There are many Muslim traditions that would say that Jesus did not die on the cross, that there is no way that God would allow a prophet like Jesus to die on a cross. So their tradition is that he swooned or he fainted and God saved him from death on the cross by allowing him to faint and be taken off of the cross. He never died. And if he didn't die, then it doesn't matter if the tomb's empty. My tomb's empty now. And you're not impressed. Because I haven't died yet, right? What's the reality? The reality is we have to begin with a death. And the reality is that one of the surest ways to die die is on a cross. There is no evidence that anyone ever survived a Roman crucifixion. You hear that? That there is no evidence that anyone ever survived survived a Roman crucifixion. They knew what they were doing, and they knew how to do it, and they knew how to do it well, and they did it to Jesus. Samuel Chandler said this, the remarkable circumstance of wrapping up the dead body in spices by Joseph and Nicodemus, according to the manner of the Jews in burying, is full proof that Jesus was dead and known to be dead. Had there indeed been any remains of life in him when taken down from the cross, the pungent nature of the myrrh and aloes, their strong smell, their bitterness, their being wrapped around his body in linens with a roller and over his head and face with a napkin, as was the custom of the Jews to bury, must have entirely extinguished them. The early church knew, the early church believed was convinced that Jesus Christ died. As a matter of fact, the early church has a creed that has been discovered, that was circulated, that was popular within, likely within months of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And you might recognize it because Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is a common creed of the very, very, very early church. 
I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by many. Specifically, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Jesus died. And when Jesus died, the tomb was sealed, and the tomb was sealed, and now, Sunday morning, the tomb is open. And not only is the tomb open, but the tomb is empty. Listen to me very, very carefully. The the tomb was not opened to let Jesus out. Don't you remember when Jesus appears to the disciples that he passes through a wall? He can pass through a wall, he can pass through a rock. The tomb was not opened to let Jesus out. The tomb was opened to let us see in. Thomas Arnold of Oxford University said, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them, and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the grave. The enemies of Christ admitted that the tomb was empty. They didn't argue that the tomb was empty, but they came up with a story that the disciples stole his body. The problem with the disciples stealing his body is that you can guarantee as Christianity began to threaten and continue to threaten Judaism and the Jewish religious leaders, they would have deployed every Roman legion that they could possibly find, every scribe, every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every loyal Jew to find that body. On top of that, the Bible says that 500 people saw Jesus at once and many of them were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. William Lane Craig said, When therefore the disciples began to preach the resurrection in Jerusalem and people responded, and when religious authorities stood helplessly by, the tomb must have been empty. The simple fact that the Christian fellowship founded on belief in Jesus' resurrection came into existence and flourished in the very city where he was executed and buried is powerful evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. Well, you're quoting the Bible. You're quoting... You're quoting stuff that we have to assume is true. Did you know that when you go off to the big universities and you learn all the things that you are told are fact about history, that most of what we know from ancient history comes from one or two eyewitnesses. 
Most of what we know about ancient history comes from one or two eyewitnesses, and you don't walk out of the classroom saying, well, that's just not enough evidence for me. Oh, no, the professor talks about it as fact. This is all the evidence we need. We have one or two eyewitnesses who have written these things down and passed them on to us. Do you know that we have at least, at least nine ancient sources inside and outside of the New Testament confirming that the disciples encountered the risen Christ? This isn't just New Testament. This is outside of the New Testament as well. We have at minimum nine ancient sources confirming the disciples encountered the risen Christ, and yet we will not take that as factual history. And yet we have more than four times the evidence of all the other ancient history. We take hook, line, and sinker. We're about to meet some of those eyewitnesses who are still unable to see in verses 13 to 27. We not only have an open tomb, but we have open scriptures. Open scriptures. In verse number 13, look at what happens. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Verse 17, and he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Verse 27, Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I think possibly... I don't know this for sure, but maybe more so than seeing Jesus turn the water into wine, 
are seeing him heal the lame and the blind and the mute and the deaf and cast out demons and even raise Lazarus from the grave, I think I might would have rather been present for this one. Could you imagine? All the confusion that surrounds the Old Testament, all the arguments over the law and its place and blah, blah, blah. Could you just imagine if Jesus just walked up beside us today and said, let me tell you, let me rightly interpret the law and the prophets for you now. I'm going to tell you, if we're going to rightly interpret the law and the prophets, we better do it not through the lens of the Jews, but through the lens of Jesus. He comes alongside these guys, and he just starts in Moses. Starts back in Genesis, and he goes all the way through Moses, through the prophets, and says, let me tell you how this points to the Messiah. Let me tell you how this unveils the Messiah. I want you to hear me very carefully. The Old Testament's primary purpose is not to give you a set of rules to follow. It is not to give you laws to keep. It's not to give you feasts to celebrate or ceremonies to observe. The Old Testament's primary purpose is to unveil for us the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't see Jesus when you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles and on and on and on and on, all the way to Malachi, you are not reading the Old Testament rightly. The Old Testament unfolds Jesus for these disciples. Jesus takes the Old Testament and unfolds Jesus for these disciples. He went from Moses through all the prophets to explain to them how the Old Testament scriptures speak of him. Some scholars say that more than 300 prophecies exist in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ. So I started thinking, what does the Old Testament tell us about Jesus 400 plus years before Jesus? So if we just were to take our Bibles and take Matthew, and we just ripped Matthew all the way to Revelation out and threw it away, and we only had Genesis to Malachi, what could we learn about our Jesus? Well, I painted myself and put together a very, very long paragraph of run-on sentences. And I'm going to read it to you. At the risk of boring you, I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to just hear. This is what we can know about Jesus if we threw the New Testament away. Put on your seatbelts, listen fast. The law and the prophets prophesy that Jesus would be born of the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, the son of God, the seed of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, from the line of Jesse, of the house of David. He would be born at Bethlehem, presented with gifts, and would escape Herod's execution of all the male children in Bethlehem. They tell of his pre-existence, that he would be called Lord, that he would be called Emmanuel, that he would be a prophet, a priest, a judge, a king, and that he would have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. They tell of his zeal for God, that he would be preceded by a messenger, that his ministry would begin in Galilee, that he would have a ministry of miracles, be a teacher of parables, that he would enter the temple, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be a stone of stumbling to the Jews and a light to the Gentiles. 
We learn that he would be betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, that the money would be thrown into God's house and it would be used to buy potter's field, that he would be forsaken by his disciples, accused by false witnesses, silent before his accusers, wounded and bruised, smitten and spit upon, mocked, that he would fall under the weight of the cross, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that he would be crucified with thieves, that he would be rejected by his own people, and yet make intercession for his persecutors. He would be hated without a cause. His friends would stand far off. People would shake their heads at him. He would be stared at. His garments would be parted and lots cast for them. He would suffer thirst. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him. He would be forsaken by God, yet would commit himself to God. His bones would not be broken, yet he would be heartbroken. Darkness would cover the lamb. His side would be pierced. He would die. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb and would rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, and be seated at the right hand of God. All of that is in the Old Testament. And probably more. You remember back when we first started this series in Luke chapter 1. We looked at verses 1 to 4. And the title of the sermon was Exact Truth. Exact truth, because Luke did not hastily or carelessly put together this gospel. Luke carefully, methodically, with great research, pain, and effort put together this gospel. And he begins it in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. With the open tomb and the open scriptures, we have truth. We do not live in a country and in a world that is devoid of truth and that can't discover truth. We live in a culture and in a world that hates the truth that's right before their very eyes. I used a quote from Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, as he spoke about the law and the prophets pointing to Jesus. In this book, he said that we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled just eight prophecies of the Old Testament is one in ten to the 17th power. That is one in a hundred quadrillion. A one followed by 17 zeros. In order to help us comprehend this staggering possibility, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They would cover the face of all of Texas two feet deep. Blindfold a man, tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar. What chance would he have of getting the right silver dollar? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from the day they wrote them to the present time providing they wrote them according to their own wisdom and yet Jesus didn't just fulfill eight he fulfilled all of them impossible impossible and yet with God 
All things are possible. The entire gospel is about God accomplishing His plan and humans seeing Him do it. 2 Peter 1, 16-21, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, we walked with Jesus, we saw Jesus, we heard Jesus, we were even there at the transfiguration, and we saw him transform before our eyes. We saw Moses and Elijah speaking with him. We heard the voice of Almighty God speak out from heaven and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard that, we saw that, we experienced that. But look at what he says next in verse 19. But we have the prophetic word made more sure. You know what's more sure than our eyes and more sure than our ears and more sure than our experience? It is the prophetic word of God. If your eyes say it's black and the Bible says it's white, you better go with the Bible and get your eyes checked. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Does the day need to dawn in your life? Does the morning star need to rise in your heart? Then get off of TikTok, get off of Facebook, get off of Instagram, get off of Twitter and turn off your TV and devote yourselves to this lamp that is shining in a dark place and the dawn will eventually rise and the day star will rise in your hearts. But if you aren't opening this book, don't come to me whining and complaining about your dry relationship with God and you just can't get right with God and God's just not doing anything for you. Get your face out of Facebook and put it in this book. I'm about to preach. Because this is how this lamp shining is how we find the dawn. And this is how the morning star rises in our hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, they said that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. This was the plan from the beginning. This ain't plan B. Oops, Adam sinned. What are we going to do? Let's call a committee meeting. This was plan A, to glorify Almighty God. We see open and open tomb. We see open scriptures. And then, in verses 28 to 35, we see open eyes. Open eyes. Look in verse number 28, Luke 24. They approached the village where they were going. Where were they going? Emmaus, remember? They were from, going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles. They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going on further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. Why? Because they recognized him? No. Why? Because he impressed them with his sermon on Moses to the prophets and the Messiah? No. 
They urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. In other words, you don't need to be out on these streets in the dark. There's bandits, there's murderers, there's robbers. You're going to be traveling these streets at night alone? Stay with us. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? I, I, re I remember this now. I realize this now. My heart was on fire. And I couldn't have been born. Why now? We've come in this room and he's, he's reclined at the table like he always did. He's broken the bread and blessed it like he did in that last supper. And my eyes are open and he's gone. How many of us all, I mean, just frequently feel just so dumb, so slow? That's how they felt, slow. How could I miss this? In verse 33, they got up that very hour. And what did they do? They returned to Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. It's seven miles to Jerusalem. It's getting dark outside when they go in the room. They've gone in the room. They've reclined at the table. They've broken bread. They've taken this bread together, and they are, now they're saying, forget the bandits, forget the robbers, forget the danger. We're going back to Jerusalem. Forget the dark. And I bet they moved fast. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen. And it's appeared to Simon. Now notice, hold on, hold on, don't get carried away. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found, gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, this isn't the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying this, these are the disciples they found gathered together. Those disciples gathered together, when these guys barge into the room, like there's an emergency, they look up at the disciples from the road to Emmaus and say, the Lord is really risen and he's appeared to Simon. And then those disciples who were on the way to Emmaus began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. You know what is interesting? God, Jesus... God in the flesh broke this bread and they didn't see him. He broke this bread from Genesis to Malachi. Their hearts burned a bit, but they didn't see him. Their eyes were not opened until he broke the physical bread. When he broke the physical bread, it clicked. Wait a minute. There was an upper room. There was a Passover prepared. We were reclining at the table. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body. 
And his body was crucified. And, and then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And, and his blood was shed. I see it. I see the suffering that he was talking about in the Old Testament and the prophets and Moses. I see the suffering on the cross. I see the suffering in the bread and the cup. And we see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. It's in the breaking of the bread that their eyes were opened. And sometimes we take this cup and we take this bread and we, well, this is something we do as Baptists. You know, it's one of those two ordinances that the Baptist faith and message talks about that we have to do to be a Baptist and be a church. So we do this, you know, sometimes about once a quarter, you know, it's a little thing we do. We underestimate the power and the importance of taking the bread physically and saying, this is how I receive Christ. Of drinking the cup physically and saying, I want the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from all my sin. It's in the breaking of bread that these disciples' eyes were open, and that is what the lost in this room need today. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, you have not been born again. Your life has not been revolutionized by the power of the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing you need to do is have one of these cups in your hand. You need to just subtly set that thing down beside you and leave it on the pew. It's just not what you need. What you need to do is look around the room at those who do know Jesus Christ, those who are walking closely with Jesus Christ, those who have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, and you witness the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, and hopefully, by God's grace, your eyes will be open to the truth of the gospel message. Paul gives us the earliest account of what happened in that room in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim. When we take the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim to those in the room who have not yet seen the Lord's death until he comes. May our eyes be opened this morning as we take the bread and drink the cup. Miss Lisa's going to come. She's going to begin to play. And as she does that, I want you to think about the bread and the cup. I know these little things can be confusing sometimes. These are the last of them. These are the last of them. But there's a little flap on the top, and you peel that back, and you can find the bread. And as you do that, I want you to look at that bread and notice that it is pure. It's clean. It's spotless. It's unleavened, and leaven in the Bible represented sin. It was a picture of sin. That's why Jesus had to send those disciples, you remember? He sent them ahead to prepare for the Passover. They went into that room, and they, they cleansed that room. They swept all of the leaven out of that room. They made sure there wasn't one 
spot of leaven because leaven represented sin. And Jesus is a sinless, spotless Lamb of God. No sin, no iniquity, no transgression, never stepping outside of the Father's will for even a second. And that perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God came to this earth to live the sinless, spotless, perfect, righteous life that God requires of each one of us. Listen, God's standard for us is perfection. God's standard for us is holiness. God's standard for us is sinlessness. And there's not a soul in this room or that's ever lived on this planet that could accomplish that standard except for Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless, spotless life. So that he could take that sinless record and put it on our account. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not, I'm better than you. Not that I don't battle sin and fight sin and wage war against sin in my own life and lose the battle sometimes. Or oftentimes. What it means is, I'm not going on my performance. I'm not going on my righteousness. I'm going on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ who came and did it for me. He checked all the boxes for me. He made a hundred on the final exam for me. And I get his grade. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. That's all I've got. Jesus. That's it. On the best day of the best week of the best month of the best year of my life, I'm not fit to even come within 100 miles of Jesus. But on the worst day of the worst week of the worst month of the worst year of my life, I can boldly approach His throne of grace because He has done it. That's what this represents. Lost people. People who don't know Christ. That's what this represents. And for those who know Christ... This is what we celebrate and remember. Let's thank you. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and was obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we thank you that that perfect righteousness can be given to us. That the one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could become the very righteousness of God. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his body. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad I've got the righteousness of Jesus, but I'm still a mess. And a mess is a, is a nice way to put it. And that's why we remember the cup. If you take that next flap, take it back, you'll see the the cup, the red cup that represents not the life of Christ, but the blood of Christ. Because look, look at what the Bible says. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, past, present, future. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because His blood cleanses us. It doesn't cover us. You don't cover. That's like hiding something. He doesn't just cover it up like I don't want to see that. No, he cleanses us from all of our sin. The blood of bulls and goats, they wouldn't do. But the perfect sacrifice of Jesus 
cleanses us from all our unrighteousness, past, present, and future. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There may be some discipline. Fatherly, loving discipline, but there is no condemnation. And when we die, Satan may unroll a whole scroll of our sins. We sang at the beginning of the service of Mighty Fortresses, our God, written by Martin Luther. He had a vision of the devil coming to him and unrolling before him a long scroll filled with every sin he had ever committed. And he said, is that all you got? Is that all of them? He said, that's it. And he said, you forgot one. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all my sin. And I got a feeling when he unrolls our scroll, thank God it's going to be blank because it's going to be clean. If you don't know Christ, this is what we celebrate. This is what we remember. That not only did he live the life God requires of us, but he paid the price for our sin in full so that we can have peace with God. Let's thank him for that. Father, we thank you for Jesus' blood that was shed on a cursed tree. As we saw last week that your judgment, your wrath was poured out upon Jesus on that cross because of our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, and it was paid in full. He was able to say with authority, it is finished. We thank you that our sin's paid for. We thank you that it's not about us, but it's about the sufficiency of his blood. We thank you for that blood that cleanses us from our sin in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe as we have broken the bread and taken of the cup, your eyes have been opened for the first time. Maybe you've heard the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but you, you've seen it. You've seen the bread. You've seen the cup that represents the life, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ and your eyes have been opened. If that's you, listen, don't leave this place this morning without grabbing somebody you trust or one of us ministers, pastors, we'll be glad to stop, talk with you, pray with you, point you to Jesus till you find peace with him. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we're going to finish up Luke and we're going to go somewhere else. And I know where we're going, but you don't. I'm going to keep it a secret till next week, okay? Then I'll tell you. How about that? Part of worship is not just, get, it's not just praying and singing and opening the scriptures and taking communion and celebrating baptism. Part of worship is also giving. And if you've been here for more than a few weeks, you know we don't talk about giving very much. And one of the reasons we don't is because you've been very faithful. God has moved his people to give and to be generous. And even through all of last year's upside-downness, we've just been amazed at how faithfully you've given. And as we saw last week in our members meeting, 24% of everything that comes into this church goes out. It doesn't stay here. It goes out elsewhere to the nations. But part of worship is giving. So we want to remind you, we're not passing the plates, but we want to remind you those plates are at the doors. And part of your worship and part of your faithfulness is to give, not because there's a crisis or because we need money or because we want to heap a burden of guilt on you, but part of worship and a walk with God is giving. 
So when you leave here this morning, we're going to pray, and as you leave here this morning, if that's been something missing in your walk with the Lord, we want to remind you, hey, we're still taking offerings. We're Baptist, amen? We're still taking offerings. We just may not pass the plate, but those who sow sparingly also reap sparingly, and those who sow bountifully reap bountifully. And we're not talking about stuff. We're talking about spiritual things. So part of your spiritual good is to worship through giving. We're thankful for your faithfulness, but for whoever that may be for, you can give on the way out the door. And look, we've got uh, one of the things we used to do is we put a flag out to remember those who are serving our church on mission trips. And we've got a team in Germany this morning. And uh, they've they already started working. And they're going to be there till next Monday. So this will be out the next, next Sunday as well to remind you when you see that to pray for that team, to pray for their protection, for their trip back, and for especially while they're there that they would encounter God and be used of him. And if you want to give to help offset that expense, which was pretty heavy, you can do that. Just make a mark and say Germany team, and your missions committee will take care of that for you. Got it? Thank you for being here this morning. Let me pray, and we will leave and hope to see you back next Sunday, if not before. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. We thank you for this team that's in Germany that's serving you, um, that is on a different time zone and a different culture among a different language, in a very trying time on this globe. We pray that you would give them peace with you, that you would use them, speak through them, give them experiences with you, that they would see your hand at work in a very powerful way. We thank you for getting them there safely, getting them rested, and getting their feet on the ground. And we thank you, God, for how you've already used them. We pray that you would continue to do that, and we pray that you would get them home safely and on time so that we could hear how you've used them. God, we thank you for the folks that are here, for how you've worked in our lives as you've opened the scriptures to us in the past, maybe this morning. God, I pray that we've been drawn near to you. I pray that if there's a person here that doesn't know you, they won't leave this room until they catch somebody that can talk to them and point them to you. God, we thank you for their faithfulness and for how you've used their labors, their prayers, their giving to do more than we'll know on this side of eternity. We make sure we'll give you the praise, God. We'll give you the glory and the honor, for it's all yours. You alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.